You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible and the three-step process. We read it, we think about it, and then we apply it to our lives today. And today is our first episode on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And this book is a little bit different from some of Paul's other letters, and we'll get into it and we'll find out why. But we're going to look at this book according to the theme of joy. There's a lot of different themes in the book, but probably what you're familiar with with the book of Philippians is joy. Um, This is the book where you have the passage, Rejoice in the Lord Always, and again, I say rejoice, and that's in chapter 4 and verse 4. It's a great letter um, or book as we know it today, and there's a lot of stuff in here. We're going to start today with chapter 1 and verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 11. We have outlined this book according to key passages containing the word joy or rejoice or some synonym or form of that word for joy or rejoice. And today we're going to look at the first 11 verses uh, with the topic of Paul's joy, and that being Paul's joy in the Philippians, because we're going to find out in these first 11 verses that Paul really likes the Philippians. Paul's very happy when he thinks about the Philippians, it makes him feel good. And we have a class on this. Uh, last Wednesday night we had the class and the comment was made that these Philippians for Paul are kind of like, as a parent, when you have kids and you know you love all your kids just the same, but maybe you have a kid that always is listening and always following directions. You don't have to worry about if that kid's going to get himself in trouble or not. That's kind of like the Philippians to Paul, Mm because Paul calls himself, you know, the father of these people in Christ. He says they're his children in Christ. And then with the Philippians, it's like a sigh of relief, like, you guys, I don't have to worry about you all the time. When I think about you, I'm very happy. Yeah, I I think that's a pretty good way of phrasing the difference between your close friends and your acquaintances. You love all, you love equally Mm-hmm. But you you rejoice unequally, you know. Yeah. I never I never thought about that before, but I do know that this is a concept that we see in Jesus's ministry. You know, he obviously had certain friends that he was closer to than others. Mm-hmm. He loved everybody the same. He even loved his enemies. But then there were three disciples out of the twelve that he would call aside: Peter, James, and John. He'd pull them aside for special occasions. And then there was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom he loved. You know, John 11, verse 5 says that he loved them. And you take that in terms of a special love. And people really, you'd be surprised at how many people struggle with this, um, about whether it's right to have joy in certain people over other people. Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, I've been asked this question, maybe you have too. Is it right for me to have best friends? And I think what they're doing is, it's not that they love them more than others, they just enjoy them more than others. Yeah. And and you you brought up, it, it's, a lot of it has to be, you, you don't have the social awkwardness with certain people that you have with others, because yeah. they just lean in directions that you lean in, mm-hmm. and then sometimes they don't, they're not a constant train wreck all the time yeah. on you in a... In a emotional burden and so we love everybody but there's some people in our lives that drain us and there's others that charge us up yeah and the philippians really charged paul up you know you see that come out and that's what he means you know by enjoying them yeah taking joy in them i think that's exactly and i wish you had been in our class wednesday night uh because that's a great I think that's a great way to look at it. That's why Paul... By the way, I don't skip Andrew's classes. I was teaching another (laughs) class. Well, I I was in another class. Yeah, sure you were. I'd love to be in there, Andrew, if I possibly could. Whatever. Anyway, (laughs) um, we're going to look. And so why is Paul so happy with the Philippians? Well, let's go ahead and get into the reading. Let's start. The book starts off the same way every other letter of Paul starts. uh, Unless you want to argue that he wrote Hebrews. But here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, 
and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so every book or every letter at this time, you'd write a letter, you'd start it off with your name. Uh, pretty basic stuff, I know, for most uh, people that are familiar with the New Testament. They know when you wrote a letter, you started with your name. Kind of like you write a letter or an email today, you start with the other person's name, dear so-and-so um, or to so-and-so. Well, back then, it was the opposite. You started with your name first. Instead of signing your name at the end, you put your name at the beginning. And so you have Paul and Timothy here. And um, it is interesting, you said he starts it out like every other one, but it's interesting that he, he mentions Timothy alongside of him, and mm-hmm. and he mentions others alongside of him, and sometimes just himself. So you wonder to what extent Timothy had input into this letter. Yeah, and there's a couple things on this here. Um, first of all, there's not a whole lot that needs to be said about Paul being the author even the people that don't think uh, the New Testament is inspired think that Paul wrote this letter. So there's not much argument about who wrote it. Paul wrote it. And since this is our first episode on Philippians, we're going to do a lot of introductory stuff to the book, such as authorship and date and all these things. But as far as the author goes, Paul wrote it. Now, Timothy was involved somehow. Um, there's a couple different options. Um, one is that Timothy co-authored the book which is probably the less likely, or the least likely, I think, out of the options. Um, The other two options are either Paul is just mentioning the fact that Timothy is with him uh, in Rome. Uh, Paul is under house arrest at this time, so uh, this could be that Timothy is just with Paul, working with Paul, or it could be that Timothy actually wrote the letter down while Paul spoke it out loud. And there are some traditions that come from that, but it's most likely that uh, simply Timothy's working with him. Yeah, uh, I, you know he did use. I'm gonna I'm gonna use a five hundred dollar word here just because <laughs> I remember it from grad school. Amanuensis. Did I say that right? I've literally never heard. It that basically word. means his secretary. And uh, there were others who possibly served that role for Paul. In other letters, there's the theory that Paul's eyesight was terrible. Mm-hmm. Indications of that are found in the one of the earliest letters that he wrote, the book of Galatians. So uh, yeah. I, I think it's very likely that Timothy just, uh, he dictated to Timothy, and Timothy wrote it down, or Timothy helped him, you know, as he put some notes down, that Timothy helped clean it up. Uh, yeah. He, You know, it, it's the Galatians letter where... At the end of it, he says, see with what large letters I write to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it sounds like some other person was you know, writing this down physically as he was dictating. Until the end, he had to show his signature or give them a proof of authorship through his handwriting. And that's yeah. what that little note meant. And if he did that with Galatians, he probably did that with all of his letters. Hence, yeah. Timothy comes in. Now, Timothy was his son in the faith very closely associated with his teaching. So as a secretary he would be he would be more than just a typewriter for yeah. Paul. You know, he would definitely be somebody that Paul talked with about these concepts and yeah. worked out. And of course, you know, we have to mention that this is an inspired book of the Bible, so the Holy Spirit was behind the whole process as it was being pinned down. But I like you know, we don't know we're speculating, but I like the idea that Timothy was the secretary, the amanuensis, if yeah. not for any other reason. I get to use this this word that makes me <laughs> yeah. sound really smart, yeah. but I'm not. That is so, true. i got to remember that. I would write it down if I knew how to spell it, but I'm not going to. Man, I hope I said it right. I'm sure you right. did. We'll say you did. If we said it wrong, somebody leave a comment and let us know. If we don't get a comment, we'll assume you said it right. Okay. Yeah, I'm right. Um, so, <laughs> Timothy uh, could have written this letter down while Paul spoke it. Um, and another reason for that, a, a big reason, is the possibility of Paul having whatever thorn in the flesh was, eyesight or some other problem that made it an issue for him to write things down. Um, another theory is that he couldn't write it down because he was chained up or chained to a guard at this time. Because Paul, at this time, is under house arrest in Rome. 
And this letter was written probably from the years A.D. 60 to 63. Um, Lipscomb, everybody's familiar with David Lipscomb and his commentary. He very confidently says that you can know the book was written near the end of A.D. 63. Now, there are other guys that say it's probably written in 60, some that say 62. So it's safe to say from 60 to 63, towards the end of Paul's life, um, at the end of the book of Acts, you find, at the Acts chapter 28, you'll find that Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He has a guard staying with him. Uh, if you want to flip over there, if you're riding in your car, I can read it for you. It's in Acts chapter 28, and starting in verse 16 is when Paul makes it back to Rome. Really, in verse 11, he makes it back to Rome, but in verse 16, um, the writer says this, And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So house arrest at this time was something that was pretty much used for either prisoners of privilege, like maybe uh, someone who is very important or prominent, they would be given this kind of more mild punishment, um, or it was given to those who were you know, not a big threat or, you know, I guess not a, a flight risk or something like that. Certainly Paul probably would have fit that category. Uh, Paul was probably put under house arrest instead of being thrown in prison for the following reasons. Uh, first, he was waiting on, uh, basically he was waiting on his trial with Caesar because he had appealed to Caesar and he was waiting to see Caesar. He was a Roman citizen and that provided him with some legal protection. Under Roman law, if you're not a Roman citizen and the Roman guard doesn't like what you're doing, they can pretty much just beat you to a pulp in the street, and it's okay. But if you're a Roman citizen, they can't do that. You have, by law, you are given uh, the right to a fair trial. And so that's why Paul, in the book of Acts, he says, I'm a Roman citizen, and people get, you know, they get scared because they've already beaten me. from this Roman colony, Tarsus. Yeah. And which was in the province of Cilicia which is over in the eastern side of modern-day Turkey, but Rome had mm-hmm. these colonies here and there all throughout the empire, and he was lucky enough to be to be born in one of those colonies, which gave him automatic citizenship by birth. Uh, there's, a, there's a soldier one time that had purchased his citizenship, and, you know, when Paul claims Roman citizenship, the guard says, well, I purchased my citizenship at a great value, and Paul said, well, I was born a Roman. And so... Uh, you know that that definitely has something to do with the circumstances that precipitated the writing of this letter. Uh, if he had not been a Roman citizen and he had been in chains, I doubt he would have been given opportunities to write. And yeah, you know, even if he had written it down to get it to get it out, would have been something he couldn't do. Yeah, and he's given a lot of freedom under house arrest. You can look. In the the rest of the book of Acts, after verse 16, uh, just those few verses that follow to close out the book from 17 to 31, people are coming to Paul. You look in verse 17, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and they all gathered to him. You look in verse 23, they appointed a day for him. They came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. There's people coming to and from him. He's managing his um, ministerial co-workers because he's sending them around to deliver these letters while he's under house arrest. He's given a lot of freedom. And uh, these are some of the freedoms that people were allowed while they were under house arrest. You could rent your own lodging. You could choose where you want to live. You look in verse 16, uh, Paul's allowed to stay by himself. If you look at the very end of the book, um, verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense. So he's got a lot of freedom, but he's got a guard with him. Um, and there's some history that uh, it's possible that he was chained to a guard. Um, and this, again, could have been a reason that Timothy wrote the letter down, or it could have been a thorn in the flesh. Um, this happened, this is in Josephus in his Antiquities. He talks about Herod Agrippa. Before he was in leadership, he was put under house arrest, and he was chained to a guard. So it's possible Paul was chained to a guard, possible that he wasn't. Um, something else that's interesting on why Paul would have been under house arrest and not in prison. This is an interesting note. Um, 
about, uh, let me see here, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this guy's name right, but Paul was most likely, he mentions in the book of Philippians, the imperial guard in verse 13, chapter 1 and verse 13, talks about the whole imperial guard. Now this is a Roman, uh, kind of the elite Roman soldiers known as the Praetorians, I think is how you pronounce that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the guy that was in charge of the Praetorians at this time, his name was Afranius Burrus. And this guy was known in history for being a very honest man, for being a good man. And so that's another reason it's possible that Paul was under pretty good circumstances being under house arrest. You know, this guy that was in charge of the imperial guard that was guarding Paul, if he's an honest man, you know, is probably going to recognize Paul's not guilty of anything. Um, Something else that supports the picture that you're drawing here is a letter that was written around the same time as Philippians, Colossians, at the very last verse of that, one of the last things that he says to the Colossians as he closes out that letter is, Remember my chains. Now, that could have been a metaphor for his imprisonment, but there's a lot of history that backs up the idea that while even while under house arrest, you're chained 24 hours a day to, yeah. a, to a guard. And if you're wondering what that looks like, I, I had it described to me one time in a class as a rather long chain, you know, where it wouldn't hinder the guard nor you from from going around the the house and around your quarters and doing the things that you needed to do. But but still, there was some something that keep you from from running away and and um, you know it and it wasn't just you know like a ball and chain, but he was physically chained to a guard, which come. Uh, you know, I think we'll probably be talking about um, verse 13 later, maybe next week or mm-hmm. in the think section as we try to figure out where he was in prison. But um, I think that plays a role in, in what you mentioned about the Praetorian or the Imperial Garden, verse 13. Yeah, so we've got Paul and Timothy in their situation. And so if we look, uh, the next part in that greeting is to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And now we'll talk about the city of Philippi more in our think section, uh, kind of give you a background of the city a little bit deeper than uh, what we'll discuss right now. But uh, the city of Philippi had a very rich history dating all the way back to Philip II of Macedon, who is the father of Alexander the Great. And that's why the city is named Philippi. Philip comes in, takes over the city, renames it Philippi. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about why Philip did that in the next section um, but as a result of that, when Alexander comes along later, then there's a big battle between uh, Cassius and Brutus and Octavius and Anthony after uh, you know the rebellion against Julius Caesar, his assassination. There's a big battle that goes on near Philippi, and the place ends up becoming a Roman colony in 31 BC. So if you fast forward about 80 years to AD 50, you've got... Paul, Luke, Timothy, and Silas coming to Philippi with the gospel for the first time. And so by this time, this place has been a Roman colony for 80 years. It's described as a little version of Rome. Everything's Roman. The culture, the people, the dress. They speak Latin here. They don't speak Greek. This is a miniature version of Rome. And so the people here are very Roman Um, Lots of them have a military background because um, Octavius, uh, who's later going to be known as Caesar Augustus, he sends a lot of his soldiers back over there with land, kind of, I guess, as a reward. You can go retire over here. I'm going to give you some land. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those guys are Roman soldiers. And that's going to play into the kind of people that live there. A lot of the people there were very morally sound people. They were, because of, I think, of their background in the Roman military, uh, the, the city just kind of has this culture of being honorable. Discipline. Yeah. Discipline. Of all the, I guess, the good qualities of early Rome, Lipscomb, in his commentary, calls the men of Philippi the fine types of manhood, which is kind of a hmm. 
interesting quote. Or how that works for the women there. Yeah, but he says that they are truthful and honest, sane and serious. They understood the sacredness of a promise. Kaufman, uh, in his commentary, quotes a historian saying, they represented the noblest and soundest part of the ancient world. So these are very dedicated, kind of think of, you know, to some of the movies maybe you've seen or the history you've read about Rome and these very honorable soldiers and uh, generals and maybe uh, whatever it is that you've seen, you think about those are good guys. You know, they are devoted, they are brave, they are courageous. When they start something, they stick to it. They know how to keep to a promise. Um, They're good people here. And so it's no surprise that they're going... Kind of like embodied, if you're more familiar with Scripture, in the Philippian jailer. Yeah. You look at some of the character... Uh, of him, and I know you're probably going to bring him up a little bit later, but uh, you know he was when when he thought he lost his prisoners. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not something I would recommend, but he was going to kill himself because that's an honorable thing to do. Yeah. And then you know he realized the, where the real power was, and he got down on his knees. What must I do to be saved? When he heard the truth, he wasn't like Pontius Pilate where he was. You know, washing his hands of things or rationalizing things away, but yeah. he's very open, clear-minded, honest, sincere. His whole house—he brought his household in, so it shows that you know his servants mm-hmm. and his family were behind him. Uh, he was a leader. All of those things, you know, kind of embody w- w- the picture that you're drawing here of the average Philippian, at least you know, man or or. or head of household or soldier that was living in that city at that time. Yeah, that's, um, and again, I wish you'd been in our class Wednesday night because we actually did mention Philippian Jailer, but that's a, I mean, case in point. So the people there are great people, and then that's going to lead us into the next few verses. You look in verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of me, with me, of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul, and you can continue on in verse 8, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul really likes these people. He is uh, very happy with them because of how dedicated they are. It brings him joy when he thinks about them. Um, And you can read where he establishes the church back in the book of Acts um, in chapter 16 that records when he sets up the church there. And of course, we mentioned the Philippian jailer. Before that, he meets Lydia by the river and he baptizes her as well as her family. Um, And from this point on, The missionary group that we mentioned earlier stays with Lydia in her home. Later, Paul will cast uh, the demon out of a slave girl, and that would lead to their beating as well as imprisonment in Philippi, and then that's the situation where they encounter the jailer. So Um, when he says, I'm thankful in my remembrance of you all, you think about Acts 16, and you think about Lydia, which that's interesting. You know, we... We're gonna to have to do some of this in other parts, but yeah. you know, here it starts among women. There's not enough men for a synagogue, and there's not a whole mm-hmm. lot of Jews, which goes along with the picture you're saying. It's a very Roman city, yeah, a very Gentile area. It's the first European stop on the missionary journey. So you think of Lydia and the women that were with her, and then you think about the Philippian jailer and his family, and that that those were the first members of this congregation. Yeah, we separate those in our sermons and classes, two different episodes. But you think about the Lydia was worshiping with the Philippian jailer and his family. Yeah, that that was the church when Paul left Philippi. Yeah, and that's who he's remembering. Mm-hmm. That's who he's writing to. Yeah, and it just puts flesh and blood on this letter as you're as you're reading it and thinking about who is he remembering. It's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so in verses three through. Um, eight, you've got Paul's remembrance of them. And then verses 9 through 11, you have Paul's prayer for them. So he's remembering the events that you read about in Acts chapter 16. If you want to know what Paul means when he says, my remembrance of you, go read 
Paul's time that he spends in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Then in verses 9 through 11, he has a prayer for them that their love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that they may be able to prove what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's a lot of ideas packed into that uh, that we'll end up covering later. But for now, that is the reading for our introduction to Philippians, Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Andrew, let's go back to the church. I want to talk more about about the church of Philippi because I think I think we just breezed through that, and you know we were talking over the break that maybe we shouldn't have got into that and saved it for think. Um, but we were talking about you know when he says I you know I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He's talking about real flesh and blood people, and we mentioned some of those as Lydia and the Philippian jailer and his household. So I, I I just want to go back to the circumstances of the establishment of the church in in Philippi and point out a couple of things that we did not mention. One is that it wasn't Paul's original intention to go to this city. He was from Asia Minor. He was from Tarsus in Cilicia, which is over on the eastern end of modern day Turkey. Back then, Asia Minor. And I think it was his intention on his second missionary journey to just go back through the churches that he had established on the first missionary journey with Barnabas. Now he's with Silas and later Luke and Timothy and some of these other other guys. And and strengthen them and encourage them, maybe establish more churches. He had no idea that he'd be going over to Europe. But in chapter 16... They are in uh, Asia, that's Asia Minor, not Asia that we think of with China and India and those, those countries today. And they, they're having all this trouble because of the Holy Spirit. You know, the wording is really strange here, and you wonder what's going on. Verse 6 says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, this is talking about lower lower peninsula, and they're up in the higher part of the peninsula there. The Holy Spirit won't let them go back through some of those cities that they had covered in the first journey. And when they'd come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So first of all, the Spirit is giving negative pressure. Don't go here. Don't go here. And I don't know how that worked. I don't know if Mm -hmm. there was a voice or an intuition or a sign or a vision, yeah. I, but there was some negative pressure. Do not cover these territories. And then you read this in verse 8, and I'm in Acts 16, passing by Mysia, they go down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul after he saw the vision, immediately went to Macedonia because he concluded God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, notice how he draws a conclusion here. First, he pays attention to the negative pressure. Don't do this. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. And then he pays attention to the positive pressure. Come over here and help us here. You know, in God's Word, you have negatives and you have positives. And when you put all of that together, you draw a deduction of what God's will is for your life. And that's what we do today. You know, there aren't maybe specifics. Uh, I noticed that Philippi is not mentioned, but Macedonia. So Mm -hmm. it was up to Paul to kind of say, okay, let's go to Philippi. Because I've got some negative things saying, "Don't don't go to Asia don't go to Bithynia, and then I've got some positive saying, go to Macedonia. I'm going to draw a conclusion here to go to Philippi. And that's what yeah. they did. And so that's why I wound up going into Philippi. And what's remarkable about that is, that is the first European city ever 
to have the gospel preached within its borders. Mm-hmm. There's a big first right there. And we saw another big first in Acts chapter 10 when Peter was privileged to be the first to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. You back up to another big milestone is Acts chapter 2 where Peter preached the gospel for the first time in the whole world. Well, I think this is up there with those two events. The very first time the gospel is brought over. And so it's no longer just a Middle Eastern um, you know, religion, Middle Eastern faith. This is where it becomes very clear. This is a universal message, universal good news for all people, every race. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned some of the things about the makeup. This is a largely Gentile population. And that's really uh, brought out by the story that you have in Acts 16.11 where they go down to Philippi and they... You know, Paul's usual custom is to find the synagogue mm-hmm. and on the Sabbath go into the synagogue and use that structure to preach the scriptures and, and show that Jesus is the Christ. Evidently, he couldn't find one because uh, Luke tells us in verse 13 that on the Sabbath day, they went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. They just kind of intuitively felt you know, somebody's going to be praying by the riverside since there's no synagogue here. And sure enough, they found um, women who'd come together. Now, there may have been enough women, but you had to have ten, was it ten leading men in order to build a synagogue of the mm-hmm. Jews. So there were women, not enough men, and one was uh, Lydia. She's called a worshiper of God. You familiar with that phrase, worshiper of God? Uh, God-fearer is another way that is translated, and it's code for a Gentile Jewish proselyte, a Gentile who is converted to the Jewish religion. Um, now, with males like Cornelius, he's called this, in Acts 10, is it verse 1? Uh, he's called that, and it usually indicates that he hasn't been circumcised, but he does uh, believe that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true and living God. He's offering sacrifices, and it's Lydia's faith as well. She's a Gentile who, who worships the God of the Jews. Perhaps the Ethiopian eunuch as well was was mm-hmm. one of these. So, um, you know, she's there. She's a seller of purple goods. She's a woman who's probably very wealthy. Uh, Thyatira was the location of this shellfish, and, and uh, they extracted purple dye from the shellfish by uh, inserting a needle into a very small vein mm-hmm. in the shellfish, which is a very laborious process, you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, that's why this dye was very expensive, and anybody who could sell it was probably making a lot of money. So we're not talking about an impoverished person in the lower class. We're talking about an upper-class woman that uh, you find here, and uh, she was the first European convert to the gospel. Other women are there. They're not mentioned by name. But then you have uh, this incident that you mentioned where uh, they cast out the spirit of divination, and uh, that leads to their being in prison. Paul and Silas are singing hymns in prison. There's an earthquake. The jailer sees all of these things happen, and he knows there's something special about these men, which causes him to get down on his knees and ask, Acts 16.30, "'What must I do to be saved?' And they preach Jesus to him. He obeys the gospel along with his household. And you have a church. You have a church. These are the first Gentile converts. So that's how the church in Philippi came to be. Um, And it's an interesting story that we get here behind this epistle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's so much history behind the letter to the Philippians that we don't generally think about when we read the letters. We just kind of read them like, you know, reading more of the Bible. And, you know, because, I mean, if you have a reading plan or something, or you just pick up your Bible to read it night, you pick it up, you start reading it, and you just read it for what the words say, and don't consider anything else that's there. Mm-hmm. But when Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, there's so much going on in the background that you really need to know in order to understand what's going on in the letter, to make those words really make sense in the way they're supposed to make sense, and the way Paul meant for them to be heard. And we talked a little bit 
about some of that background in the city of Philippi, about what the city was. Um, just to kind of review a little bit, it was founded by Philip II of Macedon, that's Alexander the Great's father. Now, he took over this village because this village is on the slopes of Mount Pangaeus. And this mountain, back in those times of Philip II of Macedon, um, the mountain was known for its gold mines. Lots of gold mines in the mountain. So Philip goes up there, makes a city out of this little village, names it after himself, and he pulls in over 1,000 talents of gold per year. That's a lot of money. A talent was 20 years worth of wages. So you can imagine that's a pretty good piece of money. And so Philip uses that money from the gold mines to fund his goal of conquering the inhabited world. And Alexander the Great, after his father's assassination, probably was assassinated, um, Alexander the Great is going to continue that with the money that Philip gets from this city. So it's a really they important. they deplete the gold resources pretty quickly, right? I read I don't I don't remember it was I didn't realize they got that much gold out of it. But yeah. it it kind of the Greeks kind of dropped it after they got what they wanted out of it. And then yeah. Mark Anthony kinda Yeah, he comes back, back later, um, as we mentioned, after the the whole Anthony. thing goes down with Julius Caesar. Octavius and Anthony, who are on the same team, they Is fight it, against Cassius. It's Anthony, Bruce. right? Anthony, yeah. Kaufman spells it with an H. Anthony, oh. so, I mean, okay. properly, yes, it's Anthony. Okay. But yeah. I wanted to correct so, myself since we're yeah. on a recording here. Yeah, it's well, it's either Anthony or Anthony, and just depending okay. on, you know, who's listening. and. Uh, email your corrections to akingsley at <laughs> arcoc.com. Yeah, correction for the show. Um, okay, so Octavius is going to later be Caesar Augustus, and he's going to come back to Philippi in in uh, 31 BC, and he is going to make Philippi a Roman colony. And this is when he sends a lot of his retired soldiers out there with property in and around the city. Um, Augustus is going to pour a lot of Roman money into the city for its rebuilding and for its enhancement. Um, and as a Roman colony, Philippi would have had privileges such as exemption from taxes, freedom from the governors of that province, and political autonomy. Now, I found that really interesting that Roman colonies did not pay taxes. Yeah. Non-Roman colonies paid taxes to Rome. No. That's different than the way we look at things today, like... Mm-hmm. If if I'm a citizen of a particular place, I pay taxes to that place. Mm-hmm. But you see, Rome. Why a lot of people did not like Roman dominance because they would take over your place, would not give you citizenship, but would exact taxes on behalf of their citizens. Yeah. So you can imagine how the Jews felt down in Judea. They were yeah. not Roman citizens, but Rome said, "We're we're running you." And as long as you pay taxes, we won't kill you. <laughs> and But they knew that the Roman citizens were not paying taxes. Yeah. So I, I, I found that interesting. Yeah, everybody else is paying for Romans to live, mm-hmm. pretty much. Or for all the, for the roads and all the services and their military. They're, they're mm-hmm. paying the military that would wipe them out if they quit paying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of... The culture that this is going into obviously is a little different from ours. Um, By the time Paul and Luke and Timothy and Silas get there in Acts chapter 16, it's probably A.D. 50-ish. And um, by this time, as we mentioned earlier, plenty of time for Philippi to have been solidified as an important and major base of Roman power in Macedonia. And if you read in Acts chapter 16 and verse 12, Luke's going to write that it is a leading city in the province of Macedonia, and then it's a Roman colony. So by this time, it's a really powerful city. Um, Part of that is because of its history, and part of it is because of its location on the Ignatian Way, which is a very important road at this time in the world. It's a 500-mile highway from the Adriatic Sea through Thrace to Bithynia. So it's a long road, a major road. Philippi's location on this road uh, was very beneficial for economic reasons, and it would explain how somebody like Lydia 
could do well selling purple stuff, purple cloth, whatever it was she was selling. Um, she'd get her supply from the east, and she's got to demand her demand out in the west. Um, so the city itself, there's a lot going on here. We talked about the people that live there. So it's kind of a rich soil, I guess, for Paul to be working in. And this is going to have something to do with why he ends up liking them so much because they're able to, I guess, stay with him, unlike the Galatians, who when he writes their letter to him, he says, I'm surprised you so quickly turned. You know, it's a almost a breath of fresh air that these guys are actually staying put and doing what they're supposed to do. So there's some background of the church and the city in which the church is established in. And now let's spend a little more time. And when we had our class on Wednesday... We said that we would explore a little bit, uh, a little bit further, the idea of the date of the book and from where Paul wrote the letter. So where Paul would have been and when he would have written it. We said in the first part of the podcast that he wrote it from Rome under house arrest uh, from the years sixty to sixty-three. There's two more theories that carry a little bit of weight, but in the end. Um, I'm under the impression that it's most likely Rome from 8060 to 63, which is why I mentioned it as such in the beginning. Um, but just to dig a little bit deeper into it, as we said we would in class, the two other theories are that Paul wrote it from from Ephesus. I'm so used to saying Ephesians. That's what I wanted to say, Ephesia. Paul wrote the letter from Ephesus from the years 54 to the early 60s. Or that he wrote it from Caesarea from the year 58 to the year 60. And I know that there's a lot of overlap with dates here. There's some disagreement among some scholars where Paul was at this time, at this year, so on and so forth. A lot of things. Um, But if we look first at Ephesus, it is true that there's no statement in Scripture that Paul was ever imprisoned in Ephesus. But you can read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, that Paul says he was in prison many times. He, is, he has undergone many imprisonments. And that's where Paul talks about all the problems he's been through. Many imprisonments, being beaten by the Jews, shipwrecked, a day and a night at sea, all these things. Um, and you can read in Acts chapter 19 that Paul gets in some serious trouble in Ephesus. It is where he... Um, He's preaching about Christ, and people stop buying the little figurines of Artemis or Dionysus, uh, whatever your translation, or yeah, Diana, whatever your uh, translation renders there. He gets in trouble because he's cutting off these people's supply of money, much like he did in Philippi with um, the girl that had the spirit of divination. Mm -hmm. So he gets in trouble for that. Uh, he also talks in 1 Corinthians 15 and 32 and 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11 about getting in trouble in Ephesus. So he could have been in prison. There's nothing that says he was in prison, but he could have been. And we already mentioned in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 13, he talks about the imperial guard, which is the praetorian guard. Um, there was probably a praetorian guard in Ephesus. There are some inscriptions that show that there was a section of the praetorian guard in Ephesus. Really? Yes, really. According to um, Carson, D.A. Carson, the introduction to the New Testament book, um, there are... See, I read something different from that. I read that the guard would have only been in Rome, Mm -hmm. but that this word can be translated in terms of a place instead of a person. Yeah. Praetorium instead of Praetorian guard. Mm-hmm. And then a praetorium is like, you know, the the governor's headquarters. Yeah, I think this is kind of the same idea. So so uh, the way I read it is, you could translate this, the praetorium. Uh, it has become known throughout the whole praetorium that my imprisonment is for Christ. And that would, that would support Ephesus. Mm-hmm. Um, but if uh, D.A. Carson is a lot smarter guy than me... If he thinks there was a Praetorian guard in Ephesus, I'm sure there was. I think that's kind of... That basically means a Roman guard. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the idea of, like, this is the ruler's little compound here, and there's the elite soldiers there guarding it. So some of the yeah. Praetorian soldiers, some of the elite soldiers would have been put there. 
So I think that's Ephesus kind of Ephesus was idea. not a Roman colony. No. And so that's kind of some evidence against this being Ephesus. Because you look in here and he says, um, he says that he the whole imperial guard, he mentions that, and he mentions Caesar's household. 422. Yes. At the end of the book, he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Which, you know, considering the Philippians background now that we know that it's a very Roman city and it makes sense for Paul to be saying you know members of Caesar's household are sending you greetings and that's probably not Caesar's family probably just people that are working with for him yeah support yeah. staff possibly family distant relatives yeah everybody combined that that term household Paul used that really loosely so probably what you're looking at there is in Rome. Paul's in Rome, and there are members of Caesar's cabinet, I guess, for lack of a better word. Maybe his family, some of his workers, whatever. They're members of the church in Rome mm-hmm. is what that's probably referring to. So that's kind of a knock against Ephesus. Um, there's another theory that he wrote it from Caesarea, and it's built upon the evidence that Paul was in prison there for two years. And you can read about that in Acts 24 in verse 27. Uh, the praetorium, as you've already defined for us, is like the the location, the governor's, or the not the governor's, but the leader's headquarters. Yeah. Um, the praetorium that Paul mentions in Philippians could have been Herod's praetorium. Yeah. You can see something about that in Acts 23 and verse 35. Um, and then there's some kind of technical stuff. You can see his warning against... Um, False teachers in Philippians chapter 3. Paul's warning against false teachers in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, and he starts talking about the circumcision and stuff. Kind of familiar to, and you can keep reading out, he talks about his credentials as a Jew. Kind of similar to maybe some of the things he wrote in Galatians. Uh, when Judaizers is what they're called, trying to make people Jews. When Judaizers were, I guess, a thing around that time. Um, and so they kind of take the idea, well, if he's writing about Judaizers, Judaizers were around when he wrote Galatians, so the book has to be written earlier, about the same time as Galatians. But that's a lot of speculation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just because something was around... So let me see if I get this right. Okay, so it's either written from Rome, where we know he was imprisoned, according to Acts chapter 28. Mm -hmm. Or it was written from Caesarea, where we know he was imprisoned, according to earlier chapters in Acts that describe him under uh, giving his defense to Felix, giving his defense to Festus, giving his defense to um, Herod, one of the Herods. Mm -hmm. All that in uh, Acts chapters 23, 24, around there, was Caesarea, which is in Judea on the shore there, right? Yeah. So, or he was in Ephesus, which is not mentioned as an imprisonment anywhere in profane history or in the scriptures. Yes. And we have and and we have a mention of an imperial guard in chapter one verse thirteen mm-hmm. which supports Rome. And we have a mention yeah. of Caesar's household in chapter four verse twenty two which supports Rome. Mm-hmm. And we have nothing really but mention of circumcision which Paul talks about all the time yeah in support of Caesarea and absolutely now you one thing you didn't mention in support of Ephesus that I read is all the little trips that we'll talk about in other episodes oh yeah that's that's what a lot of people want to go crazy on Ephesus because yeah, you know there's uh, Epaphroditus is coming back and forth Timothy's going back and forth uh, uh, you know there's like Somebody speculates five trips back and forth between Paul and Philippi, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're like, there's no way that somebody could go back and forth that many times between Rome and Philippi. Mm-hmm. But uh, you could count the trips differently. I still think that some evidence is better than no evidence. Yeah. So, you know, I, th- I think it's Rome. Yeah. I mean, I- we see that picture that you explained to us in the first part of the podcast where he's sitting under house arrest, chained to a guard. Those guards are hearing him talk, preach, 
proclaim right. He's talking to them. Some of those guards are turning to Christ. Uh, they all are hearing it, and it's known that that his imprisonment is for Christ. Some of the members of Caesar's household are turning to Christ. All of these indications point to a Roman imprisonment. And these mm-hmm. other things are just speculative and, and fill-up commentaries. And, and, uh, but really, uh, the message for us today doesn't change, depending on the... Oh, no. You know, he could be in Ephesus. Yeah. He's still in prison. And, and let's throw this out, too. There were four prison epistles. Mm-hmm. Um, they are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Mm-hmm. So the material in those four books are, are very similar. In fact, a lot of times uh, Ephesians and Colossians are, are taught together and uh, uh, because the material is so closely related. But that simply means that in the same circumstances, whether it's Ephesus, Caesarea, or Rome, probably Rome, he wrote those four letters. Um, I mentioned that note at the end of Colossians where he says, Remember my chains. And uh, he talks about being a prisoner for Christ in um, Ephesians chapter three or chapter four, verse one. Mm-hmm. And in Philemon, it's obvious that he's uh, imprisoned. And uh, um, you know, I've always thought in Philemon of the slave running to Rome. And I don't know if I got that from a direct reference in Philemon, or if that's just based on the assumption that his imprisonment was Roman. But anyway, the, these are the prison epistles. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, all written around the same time, 1663 from Rome. So how can we apply things that we have learned from an introduction to the letter to the Philippians. Well, this book has a lot of different themes in it that we're going to see as we continue on in our study, and that we've seen one of them, really, well, we've seen two of them so far in our study of just the first 11 verses. And one of those themes, obviously the most dominant theme of the letter is joy, um, of course, the famous rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice is in 4.4. The word joy or rejoice is found 15 times in the letter. And uh, at times these words refer to Paul's joy in the Philippians or they refer to the Christian's joy in Christ. And that leads us to the next theme of the letter, in Christ. This is a phrase that Paul really likes to use Um as in all of his letters, Christ is the focal point of everything that Paul has to say. Uh, the phrase in Christ is used often by Paul in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians in order to express a lot of different types of relationships that the disciple of Christ has to Christ himself. Um, also, there's the theme of fellowship. Paul's fellowship with the Philippians, uh, described as a partnership a lot in the book is a constant theme throughout the letter. This is one of the reasons that Paul finds joy in the Philippians. The Greek word I'm sure everybody has heard, koinonia, you've heard in some sermon before, um, it bookends the letter. It's in chapter 1 and verse 5, where Paul writes, um, he says uh, in verse 3, I thank my God in remembrance of you, and then in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then if you look at the end of the book, or the end of the letter, rather, in chapter 4 and verse 15, he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So the Philippians um, have fellowship with Paul, and it makes Paul happy. Now this is probably uh, refers to not just fellowship like... um, you know, talking with somebody or Covered dish being a meal. friend. Yeah, yeah, not a snack. Casserole. Yet. Yeah. This is something, probably is financial support. The Philippians gave Paul, they entered into partnership with him. They gave him money. They helped him. They supported him, much like a sponsor church today supports a missionary. So Philippians, the Philippians, the church at Philippi, is most likely a sponsor 
church, if I mean, if we can use that phrase, a sponsor church for Paul as he is a missionary. Um, so that's a reason, you know, Paul would obviously be very happy in those people and the remembrance of those people. And then finally, the last theme that I have, I'm sure there's many other themes that you will see throughout the book, uh, but the last one I have is encouragement. And throughout this letter, you can see Paul thanking the Philippians for their encouragement, and as well as Paul encouraging them. All in all, everything considers, um, I think that this guy named Roper puts it well when he says that a study of the letter of Philippians reveals amazing comfort blended with alarming challenges. This letter becomes a personal one of encouragement and admonition from Paul to Christians today. So there's a lot of stuff that we're going to see uh, that we'll have to talk about in application. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up before we close the podcast out, this kind of goes along with introductory material. It, he addressed three groups that represent divisions in the church in the local congregation. Verse 1 of chapter 1. First of all, you have the saints. Now, he doesn't talk about the saints as special elected, you know, uh, super-Christians, like some religious groups look at them today. It's obvious that he's talking about every Christian of the church there. So those are Mm -hmm. the members of the church. The second group are the overseers, and the second and the third are the deacons. And I wanted to point out just a few things about that. First of all, you'll notice that overseers and deacons are in the plural. Whenever you see the structure or the organization of the church in the New Testament, it is always in terms of a plurality of elders and a plurality of deacons. You do not see an overseeing bishop in the singular over one congregation or, even worse, over a number of congregations. As, you know, this is a hierarchy that started to develop as early as the second century but it is not a scriptural organization. Whenever you see the church organized, it's always under a, a plurality of elders and deacons. Uh, one other reference is Acts chapter 14, verse 23, on the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, they go back through churches they established, and they um, appoint elders in every church. Church is singular, elders is plural. That means a group of elders, not just one a group of elders over each single church. Same thing in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, another thing to, to look at, you may be hearing me talk about overseers, and uh, I'm saying elders and overseers, and I'm using those terms interchangeably. That's because that's the scriptural way to do it. The term overseers is translated from episkopoi, the Greek word, also translated sometimes bishop. In fact, King James has here bishops instead of overseers. And uh, the term bishop, overseer, is interchangeable with elder and also with pastor or shepherd. And the reason I know that is, if you'll look, and I'm not going to take time to read them, but if you'll look at uh, Acts chapter 20, verses uh, 20 and 28, and then also 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, you'll see all three of those terms, uh, overseer, elder, and pastor or shepherd, used interchangeably of the same office. So he's talking about the elders and deacons. Of course, Paul worked as an evangelist with this congregation. He's not with them at the current time, but he worked with them as an evangelist, as you know, also Epaphroditus probably did, whom we'll talk about when we get to chapter 2. So the organization of the church, I think, is an application here. That's worth pointing out because, you know, it gets so mixed up these days and you never know what kind of organizational structure you'll have uh, when you go from one church to the other these days. Uh, This is just a very simple organization, autonomous, that means self-governing congregations led by bishops and deacons. Uh, Mm -hmm. Bishops and deacons, yeah. So uh, that's about about it, right? Yeah, I think that's going to... Pretty much wrap up all the content that we have for our introduction to Philippians. If you've got any comments you would like to make, or if there are some things that maybe you think we left out, or some things that you'd like to see uh, explored a little bit further, or maybe some 
questions you have about the date or the author or some of these things such as with elders and deacons, um, send us an email. Uh, you can either email us at dkaiser at arcoc.com or akingsley at arcoc.com. And uh, we'll be back next week and we'll discover on the next episode, we'll talk about um, chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. And the key verses there are going to be 18 to 20. We're going to talk about Paul's joy in distress. So uh, we appreciate you listening to us and uh, we'll see you next time on the 66th.